Hello, filmmakers and watchers and lovers of and dreamers and thinkers about film. On today's episode of How to Make a Film, Dan and I talk with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Robert Bartolome, currently in the deepest, misty midst of making The Unicycling Unicorn, a documentary about a man following his dream to make a living riding a unicycle. We discuss the death of music videos, the increasingly valid use of stock footage for your film and video projects, Gore Rubinsky's beautiful box office bomb, A Cure for Wellness, and the TV show Mr. In-Between, among other how-to-make-a-film-type things. My name is Sean Hurley, and I'm a playwright and TV show staff writer and sitting directly across the brimming billion waves of the Atlantic Ocean from me, with a new hole in his roof to match the old hole in his heart is Dan Freeman, writer, director, roof patcher in training, and the increasingly punctured maestro of the film in progress, Hode Excalibur. Our guest today, we're so lucky to have him, is uh, Robert Bartolome. Robert is an Emmy Award-winning director and editor for commercial and motion picture. In addition to an expansive catalog of work for national brands like CVS Health, he spent over a decade working alongside major record labels, such as Capitol Records and Columbia, to produce video and advertising content. Robert is currently directing a feature-length documentary called The Unicycling Unicorn, which chronicles the worldly adventures of a traveling street performer who lives in his van. And I sent a link out to Dan and Jamie... And I bet you neither one of them watched it, but I've seen it three <laughs> times, uh, so that's good enough. Jamie has seen it. Dan has not. You know what? I've just, I, honestly, I've just got it. I've been rehearsing all week, so <laughs> I have. I've just, I literally just got in, tried to fix the room, and then I came so, yeah. here. But but I will. You know what? Is he an Emmy? Have you won any awards? Have you won anything good? I mean, this is probably that's, just uh, like some sort of school raffle or something. It's not going to be an Emmy or anything, is it? Have you have you won it? Yeah, yeah, no, I I won an Emmy last year. Yeah, that's all I've won though. That's that's it. And you know, I never won the school the school raffles. You know, just an Emmy. No luck there. Just an Emmy. <laughs> I mean, are your are your parents going? Oh, all my son won was an Emmy. Oh, I'm so ashamed. <laughs> you know, I actually watched I watched the uh, that Emmy award winning commercial before this, and I I gotta say it was really pretty great. You must have felt after you made that that you'd made something special. And, you know, even yeah. before the Emmy award. Yeah, no, thank you. It was a special project for sure. It was a pandemic lockdown project, completely editing. Um, we sort of had to take stock footage that we licensed on different various sites online and, and sort of find pieces that were pre-existing and then sort of morph it into something new that told the story that we were trying to tell. Mm. And it, yeah, it was special. It was, you know, it was definitely a team effort. I co-directed it with Scott Mayoki who's uh, runs the agency that I work with the video department and uh, I also we worked with a few clients at CVS Health on that so definitely a team effort but just a, a very special project though I think overall yeah so the commercial Dan if you haven't seen it it's for this pharmacy we have in this country CVS pharmacy and what what is the title the sort of working title of it it's called delivering hope uh, we also call it hugs short form <laughs> right it's almost like it's a very COVID-related commercial that sort of is showcasing how CVS is the place that is kind of bringing the cure to you, and, and it's sort of 
getting us back to uh, human being relationships. So there's a lot of footage of people, you know, not able to be together, you know, touching hands against glass and, you know, be people being separated by the pandemic. And then kind of there's this notion that CVS is going to be the thing that helps bring you back together. But it's very sweet. And I couldn't believe that it was uh, stock footage. It felt very seamless. And then when I read that it was stock footage, I was like, oh, I didn't know they actually did this in the commercial world, that you mm -hmm. could use stock footage and that you could piece it together so well. And it wouldn't look like a bunch of stock footage that some guy just threw together. Right. Yeah. Well, stocks come so far. I'm a big fan. Big fan of stock footage. It's <laughs> <laughs> Dan's entire film is stock footage. I just think yeah. if somebody else has filmed it, you know, use it. I think, honestly, I nick stuff from everywhere when I'm putting together concept stuff. Don't you think? How do you feel about Do you feel guilty about using stock footage? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I'm joking, but seriously, <laughs> do you feel any sort of resistance and... For sure. I think early on, I mean, we didn't have much of a choice, especially during the pandemic. There wasn't any way to go shoot any of the stuff that we needed to tell the story. Um, and stock footage has just come so far nowadays. I mean, film supply is probably one of the ones I use the most. And it, like the quality of the of the content and just the, the creativity that goes into it is leagues beyond what it used to be even 10 years ago. So it's, there's so much great work that you can pull and find little bits and pieces that just help kind of prepare your story and so i think the days of of sort of balking at stock they're kind of passing us now which is nice because it's just another way to collaborate and people to come together and work on projects like that one how re reliant are you then on stock footage so if you're shooting something now mm -hmm. would you go hey let's look at stock footage first or do you think like let's make this whole thing and then if we need some of this and some of that, like what's your, what's your working process? Yeah, we have a few spots that we're working on right now. I think we try to be resistant to using stock. We want to shoot as much original content as we can just because it, you know, it's ownership. It's, um, no one else can use it. You're not going to see our stock shot show up in another commercial two weeks from now. Um, and it, it just feels good to get original content and to be out filming something that was made specifically for what project you're working on. But for sure, if there's some kind of we element need. that we just can't feasibly film or we just, you know, it's maybe it's out of budget. Mm. Maybe we have three setups and we only have time or money to shoot two. That's when we kind of look into the stock and say, is there something we can find here that can kind of supplement us a little bit? Maybe we can talk about the unicycling unicorn. I am very interested to see this film. I, I'm working on a play and it's got a lot of comedy in it from music hall and variety. And the the main survivor of that kind of form of comedy is street performing. Mm -hmm. They have those skills that the vaudeville acts had. And mm, that's where they yeah. survived. Tell us about your interest in street performing. Sure. Yeah. So we saw this guy. We went to one of these medieval fairs uh, about a year and a half ago. It was early 2022 and uh, we just sort of fell in love with this particular act. This guy gets up on a you know twelve foot unicycle. He dances around, juggles, does the usual thing. But it was really more about his personality and how he carried himself on stage. Because um, we saw a number of acts that day, and they were you know they were good. My family was with me. My son loved them. My wife was very impressed, and so. I ended up following him on Instagram, um, just kind of kept my eye on him, thought he was cool. And then I, I said one day to my wife, I said, I think this guy lives in his van. And she said, wow, really? So eventually I followed him enough and was intrigued to the point where I reached out, you know, just got a feel for who he was and, and his lifestyle and got really excited about the idea of sort of documenting him and following him around a little bit. And the long story short is that he has multiple vans in every continent, essentially. He has one in, in Europe, he has one in Australia and one in the United States. And he bounces from, you know, wherever he needs to be 
He just flies there, gets in his van, and lives out of his van. And he sort of, sort of, in some respects, you know, got the whole thing figured out for himself. So I, you know, I said, why don't we fly out and, and meet him, interview him, get some footage, and, and just kind of just dive into this project. You know, we had the roots of an idea of the story we wanted to tell, but I said, why don't we just, let's just go, um, and we'll kind of figure it out as we film. And so we flew to Minnesota last year, uh, spent a, quite a few days with him there. And he basically had a, he had an Astro van, little tiny Astro van from like 1988 and, uh, started building out a big, large sprinter van that he had just purchased. So he's, he's basically transitioning to a larger van now. So we got to film all of the build out, which is becoming like a huge popular thing, at least in the States. A lot of people are like enjoying this idea of van life. So we got to document that whole process. We got to spend some time with his family and interview his mom and his dad. And then while we were there, sort of started to piece together his whole backstory, which is really interesting because he he spent many years married happily in sort of the Hollywood circuit. His wife was a sort of like a C-list actress um, doing some sci-fi series and whatnot. And, you know, eventually they had a sort of a huge, terrible falling out. And he had this sort of big moment where he had to decide what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. So he, he turned to his uh, his sort of side passion of unicycling and just kind of hit the road. And so yeah, I think when we sort of spent time with him that week and got to know him and his backstory, that's where I realized, wow, I think we really have something here. This is, you know, this has got some legs to it. So since then, we've been uh, filming sporadically throughout the year, doing interviews, filming him at different, you know, places. I gave him a couple of GoPros and just said, film everything. So we've amassed, you know, hours and hours and hours of footage that I need to, you know, dwindle down into something. <laughs> When you first started doing this, did you, are you just financing this yourself? Are you getting outside funding? How, how does that work? Sure. Yeah. This this is self financed. I we have a lot of equipment that well, I have a lot of equipment that we use for different projects. So that's sort of one hurdle that we didn't have to jump over, which was rentals, things like that. So essentially, you know, we didn't worry about a big crew or anything. It was just really my wife and I flying out or, or driving out and meeting him and just doing some shoots, keeping it really you know skin and bones as far as the shooting goes, but still you know, high quality so that it looks nice. But yeah, everything's been self-funded thus far. Oh, I, th I think you told me that you're like, you're sort of halfway through and you have some more filming that you want to do before, before you feel comfortable, like uh, you can knit the whole thing together. But you put together this trailer and I'm wondering, that seems like something you do at the end of the film. Is this sure. to raise awareness or are you trying to get into film festivals or what is the trailer part for? Yeah, a little bit of everything. Primarily the trailer is we're looking to get a little bit of sponsorship for what is going to be our sort of grand finale. Yeah. Next year, well, I'll say there's this giant unicycling convention that goes all over the world. It's a huge event. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. Last year was in Paris, I believe, and then uh, they do it every two years. And this upcoming summer, it's actually going to be in Minnesota, which is hmm. pretty full circle to our whole journey making this. So next summer, we'll be back in Minnesota with Jamie, who's the unicycling unicorn and his goal is going to be to set the world record for tallest unicycle ever ridden mm -hmm. right now it's around 33 feet or so and he, he wants to just go all in and go up to 50 feet so mm -hmm. uh <laughs> which is crazy I'm, I'm i'm nervous and no support no you know no uh safety nets or harnesses and things he wants to just do it the right way and go for it so i'm i'm you know it's nerve-wracking. <laughs> Does he practice by himself on a 50-foot one and it doesn't count for the Guinness Book, but he knows he can do it? <laughs> or is it like the first time he gets up there to try the world records is the first time he's ever been up that high? I, I think, yeah. The first time he tries it will be the first time, yeah. Good God. That... Yeah, there's no there's no real practicing that. I think <laughs> you just have to kind of go with it and hope, you know, hope for the best. 
And in, in terms of equipment, when you're filming a documentary, is there any sense, in, and I've never done a documentary mm -hmm. film, is there any sense in which you don't have to make it as, is there any sense, I suppose, in, in, the, in the sense that is, that, is it, is there any way that I can actually articulate a full question, <laughs> I wonder? I think it's, it's everyone's asking. You just want to know if it can look really shitty and, or you, have to tr you don't have to try as hard. Yeah, can it look shit? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, right, right. Can it <laughs> right, look right. shit? Can you get away with shitty film? <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. Great to have you. Yeah, I mean, I... Can you get away with shit? <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of question Dan will ask everyone. He's just like, yeah, bro. <laughs> can we spend less money? Do I have to use a camera? Right, right. <laughs> can I just tell people what the film's about and they can buy the ticket? Right, they could just imagine it themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, to answer your question, though, yeah, no, for sure, like anything else, the content is the king. And especially with documentaries, I feel like you can get away with not being quite as polished with, you know, what you're filming and how you're documenting it. That said, I, you know, I really like to be particular how it's done and I want it, I want to make it look as sharp as I possibly can. But when you're following around, you know, him, say, on a 12-foot unicycle or him just trying to put a piece of van together, you kind of, you have to be a little rough and tumble with the filming and kind of chase him around, sort of like run and gun style. So mm. but I think there's a happy medium where you say, all right, let's plan ahead enough that we can make this look good and bring whatever lighting gear we need to make it work, but also accept the fact that it's not going to be a, a Hollywood, you know, set. Mm. So what are you filming on mainly? Right now we've been filming on the Blackmagic uh, 6K Pro. Okay. With the settings essentially ramped all the way up, which a lot of people tell me is kind of stupid just because it's file space, but I'm fairly OCD about everything. So I just want, <laughs> I want the highest possible quality <laughs> files I can get. So for everyone else, but except me, because I know exactly all about this, the black magic. But where would you say that camera was on the consumer, prosumer or pro? Yes. I mean, as far as prosumer, I mean, it's, it's really, it's. I hate to say it's not even really a prosumer price. The price of it is so affordable, really, for, for anybody. I mean, it's a couple thousand dollars or whatever for the 6K, which is unbelievable. It's certainly not a professional cinema camera in, you know, like a, an Ari or, you know, the newer Reds. But I think for the color space that you're getting and for the, the quality of the image that you can get out of it, it's a fantastic little camera that can do a lot. I, I do know it gets sort of a little bit of hate and, and some jokes around black magic, and I I see that a lot with some of the film groups and whatnot. Um, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a hefty little camera that can do a lot. I'm all for, I mean, the camera I'm speaking to you on, the phone I'm speaking to you on, is something I, I use for filming and, and nobody notices. Right, right. I, I'm just asking out of interest. It sounds a bit accusatory, but I would use, if I could, when I can get it past the directors of photography or art directors and stuff, I'll use the basest equipment possible because I agree with you completely that it's what you're filming, not the... Mm -hmm. And I think that so many film schools and how-to videos on YouTube and stuff seem to center so hard on the equipment. And there's, there's this feeling of right. that kind of um, gatekeeping and snobbery about it. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think there's been countless DPs, you know, even Hollywood DPs that have sort of debunked that by using lower grade cameras. I think, uh, I forget what, I'm not gonna be able to remember what film it is right now, but there was a whole feature film for yeah, the, the creator, the creator. The creator yeah. It was shot on a Sony FS, FX six, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the lower grade Sonys. And I mean, they, they, the imagery is fantastic. It came out wonderfully. 
it's really just knowing how to use the, the tools and, and just get the most out of the tools that you're using. Because I think a lot of people who listen to us, well, there's one person called Juliet. Yeah, Juliet. But people are interested, you know, there's a lot of people who want to are starting off making stuff. And so I think that's really exciting mm. that you're using and advocating cheaper equipment. Yeah. I think $2,000 is prohibitive for a lot of people still. But, sure. Yeah. You know, it sounds like if you're using GoPros and things, then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and like you said, you know, the iPhones, the, the phones these days have such amazing sensors on them. It's unbelievable. So if you if you have a clear vision of what you want to film, you can get it done with anything these days. Mm. I imagine when you first started doing things that there was a uh, like a pathway forward for, you know, if you're going to make a film, you try to get it to festivals, you try to get certain types of people to see it, and then there'd be a hope that you could get it into the mm -hmm. movie theaters, you know, very long-term hope. Does that feel like it's shifted when you take something like, you know, the unicycling unicorn? What What's the sort of forward path for that? And then where do you take it? Is it clear or is it like you don't even exactly know? Right. I think it is unclear nowadays because I've had agents tell me, like, just go the festival route. That's the best route for you. Just even recently, I've had people talking to me about this. Just do the festival route. And then, I, you know, the way technology and communication is nowadays, we're literally at a lot of higher executive level fingertips. I mean, you can reach out to people at certain streaming companies. And as long as you're not sending unsolicited material, you can network with these people mm. and open doors for for communication and just saying, hey, oh, yeah, I'm working on this project. Let me know if you want to hear about it and just get conversations going that way. I think that's way more difficult than doing just the typical festival route. But it's an interesting space we're in now because networking is so, I don't want to say easy to do, but it's so achievable to, to really network with people you've, mm. you've never met. Do people seem open to that then? Like you could get in touch with somebody at Netflix or Apple or, you know, and they would take your call and listen to what you're saying? Pro probably not. No. And I, like it's I think it's a longer it's it's a longer conversation. It's more kind of getting to know these people first before you start throwing projects in their face. But, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with people at Amazon Studios like years ago that were very open. This was, I mean, this was a different time when they were smaller, of course, but they were open to some scripts as long as it was done through the proper channels and you signed the proper paperwork and whatnot. But yeah, I just think it's an interesting world we live in, especially social media and Instagram, the way it is. A lot of these networks and streamers are picking up people that are just blowing up on Instagram. They have, you know, 4 million viewers and suddenly they're getting phone calls from you know, Hulu or something about different projects and things. It's a strange little world we live in right now, and I'm, I'm curious mm. to see how it develops from here. But, I mean, I think the old-fashioned festival route probably, I mean, it's the most reliable, I would say. Like, and it still exists. I mean, I feel like that, that's some relief. It does. It is that the old horse and wagon system is still there, but it feels like it's being, you know, I don't know, some sort of new electric vehicles coming into a place that, that we don't understand, you know, like, like these Hulu stars, you know, is it going to be the case that all of a sudden it's just Instagram personalities, YouTube personalities, you know, these social media people that are suddenly going to be the new media landscape centers or will these other things kind of go alongside it? You know, will you still be able to do festivals right. and I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure either. <laughs> I'm interested in, in how, Rob, you sort of like moved into the, like, I want to make films. I know that you went to film school, yep. but what was that sort of like movement from high school, college, if you went, and then into film school? And then what's mm -hmm. it been like since then? Have you pushed your own career forward? Has there been anybody bringing you along, you know, like groups mm -hmm. or agents or other things? Like, I, I think I'm interested in like, 
What's your life? My whole life story. Kind of path look like? From start. Yeah, from start. So you're born. Yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was a small baby in the thick of New Bedford, Massachusetts. <laughs> it was a Thursday. Uh, no, uh, no, I, uh, yeah, no, actually, film, though, to be honest with you, film was something I wanted to do since I was very young, and I just sort of had my obsessive eye on that growing up, and, you know, I went through high school, did the whole TV club thing, started editing in middle school, so editing, video editing became my my thing, and then right through college, went to college for film, and, yeah, everybody pushed me to edit, They, you know, you're you're an editor, you're a natural-born editor, so I did a lot of edit work after college. I was really heavily focused on post-production. I started a director's roster in 2009, which was primarily focused on music videos. So that's, you know, that's when I worked with, you know, Capitol Records and Columbia and a lot of the big industry players. Um, and it was fun. It was really it was a learning experience. I got the Essentially, I sort of kind of pulled all these directors together from across the globe. And I just got to, I, I was a really bad producer, I'll caveat that, but <laughs> I got to produce all these projects for these directors and kind of just watch them as they worked and learn, you know, how what's what works and what doesn't work. And so I spent quite a few years doing that. And then unfortunately, music video budgets, as we may or may not know, have sort of tanked since 2010 or so. They, I just watched the budgets careen to the ground. So I was so deep in that space, I said, well, you know, what's the next best jump? And I kind of switched to commercials and advertising in that world. And that, that was a pretty easy transition. I could just kind of switch from record labels just to agencies and sort of pitch the same directors and the same work. But yeah, no, I mean, to answer your question about film in, in general, I, I never sort of took my eye off the ball, but I feel like I did spend the last decade or so sort of so deep in music videos and advertisements that I kind of got lost in that world. And I'm slowly sort of pulling myself out now and, and transitioning back to more creative storytelling and filmmaking. Mm. So you say music videos still seem to have, I mean, I saw a stop motion one recently and I thought, oh my God, you know, they're still making pretty big budget music videos I mean, or am I, is that just my perception yeah occasionally there are some big budget ones still floating around they have some decent budgets for certain things a lot of the really high-end looking videos you see though i think the budgets would probably surprise you from what i know and and even some of the work we've put out it, it's just a lot of the projects there's so many really amazing creatives out there and directors and dps out there that just are hungry for work maybe they just graduated college and they're geniuses but because they're young they'll just they'll do it for really low budgets so the because of that a lot of the budgets have just tanked and um, so when you say low what, what's a low budget music video and what's a, what's a mid and what's a big I won't throw anybody under the bus but I did have a, a record label call me and asked if I could do a music video for them for $1,000 about a couple of years ago wow yeah which is just have you still got the number because I'm available yeah <laughs> <laughs> And that was for a well-known recording artist? Yes, yeah. A uh, well-known record label, I'll say. I can't remember who the artist is, but... Okay. Um, yeah, and it was sort of one of those, like, I can't even... I couldn't even fly to them to, to even have a meeting with them for that budget. Mm. Do you think that's just them taking the piss or trying to, you know, scam you? Or what, what would you say is a sort of mid-range music video budget? When I started, it was normal to get anything between fifty dollars and $100,000 per video. We did quite a few at that budget range, which is, mm. you know, it's long. It's not the, the heyday of the 90s, you know, when they were doing like million dollar videos every other week and, and whatnot. But it was reasonable. You could get good work done and you weren't stressed. And, and I didn't feel like I was going to lose money 
by the end of the project. Mm. But then, you know, in like 2013, it started to dip down to like, you know, 20 grand per video. Um, but the expectations stayed the same. They wanted these big, massive videos mm. for a tighter budget. And then it went, it dipped down to 10. And then I started getting emails for, you know, like, oh, here we got five grand. And, and then eventually that one, it was like bottom of the barrel, $1,000. And I, I, I assumed I was the last person they called <laughs> and cause everybody else said no. Um, but <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's just been a, it's a tough world. I'll, I'll say for, for people trying to be in music videos and hopefully maybe it'll spin back around. I'm not sure that would be awesome, but, uh, it's definitely difficult. Did that seem like it was the direct result of sort of like the rise of YouTube or streaming or was, what was sort of the thing that killed the world's interest or need to have these videos? I think it's just they need quantity of content. And so because they're doubling, tripling, quadrupling the amount of videos that they have to put out just to keep up with consumer demand. Oh, I see. It's, it's the budgets are just getting, you know, divided. Right, so you don't have to just put out one thing. Right. Like you might have to, like in the old days, you put out whatever, a video for each song on the album. Right. Now you have to put out 50. You put it, yeah, you're putting out a lyric video, a, a, an artwork video, right. a, a music video. Sometimes they'll put out multiple music videos. So it's They just need that constant stream of content to keep people satisfied and keep the record in the public eye. So yeah, it's been tough for sure. I feel like it's a young creatives industry nowadays. It's like you get out of college and you're looking for work and just want to build your reel. It's it's a perfect opportunity for that. I know you, you mentioned with uh, doing the unicycling unicorn that basically it's just you and your wife doing the filming. Yes. Um, and I know that you also told me a story about how you sort of filmed a, a music video for a pretty well-known uh, singer, mm -hmm. songwriter, and you did it all in your basement. And I'm wondering if that is kind of a, a working mode that you had or whether that was just you needed to do it. Like, is that how you approach filmmaking? Or is that just in these two instances, it was possible? It was, yeah. I mean, the Unicycling Unicorn, I think, is it's just such a little passion project that we just, mm -hmm. my wife and I just wanted to do together. Um, that particular video, we can talk openly. It was for a Nora Jones project. Um, she's part of a band called uh, Puss in Boots. And so they needed a video. It was actually a, a friend of mine at the label called me. It was literally, I think it was January of 2020. So it was right right before the pandemic. So a friend of mine at the label called and said, hey, we have this little project. The budget was okay, um, mm. but he just, he needed it in a pinch. He needed it in a few days. And a buddy of mine, Tom Leotar, happened to, uh, he's a DP and we happened to be talking. And I said, hey, I got this random video. You want to shoot it like in my basement or something? And he was like, yeah. So my wife and my friend Tom and I, we spent uh, literally an overnight in our basement filming this video for Nora. So it was one of those sort of one-off, like, don't have a whole lot better to do. Like, let's just do it for fun and make it like a fun overnight project. I think at this point, that's kind of the stuff I'm, I'm into as far as music videos, because I do them occasionally, but it just, it needs to be something that I'm going to enjoy and be in good company for. Mm. But yeah, that was, I mean, that was a fun one. It was, yeah, it was part of, uh, we, we did a couple of music videos throughout the pandemic in our house. We call it the, like the pandemic trilogy, I think, or the COVID trilogy. <laughs> so, and most recently, last year, we did one for, or earlier this year, we did one for Steel Pulse, the, uh, the reggae band. They did a, a cover of David Bowie's Five Years that we did a video for right in our house. And it was, it was kind of a cool full circle. We got to have a little bit of fun with a miniature, miniature model and stuff. So mm. those are the kind of projects I like. If, you know, even if the budget's tight on those, at least they're fun and you're, you know, 
working with good people. It also seems like the, the video that you did for Nora Jones, it almost felt like that limitation of it being in your basement and really not having lots of extra stuff to play with. Mm really created this need for almost like the result that you had. So the, in the video, it's Robert's wife is sort of almost like the thematic hero of the video. And they do this very clever thing where the, the as the lyrics are being sung, we're seeing this letter that she's being written. It's like been torn into pieces. And then these little sh pieces of paper, scrap pieces of paper with the lyrics are on fire and burning. And they're sort of like you see the flame go along the... Words. Anyway, it was like a, a very poetic and really lovely way to treat the video. And I don't think you would have done that, you know, if you had a million dollars. But it maybe was the sort of a truer, truer to the spirit of the song in some ways. Yeah. Anyway. It's true. Yeah. The limitations really force you to get, you know, almost more creative. You know, how can we tell a story that is effective and emotional Yeah. Uh, with, you know, very little to, to use? So, you know, we we're always talking about or trying to talk about how to make a film. And I guess, you know, you probably don't have young, earnest children coming up to you asking you, how, how Rob, should I make a film? But I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, if people, did, if people did come up to you, I mean, what, what is the sort of route forward? Do, would you say, you know, you've got an iPhone, just go start shooting things? Would you recommend they go to school? Would you say, get a YouTube platform and just start doing stuff there? Like, how, how would you, you know, sort of push people along in, in a, a direction? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm in the position where my, my son, he's 10. Um, literally the other day he had a friend over and they want to make a little movie together. And uh, his his friend wants to be an actor. And he said, let's start, you know, let's film something. And my, my son seeing how he, he, follow, he comes to set with me sometimes and he sees the number of people at, on set on bigger shoots. And he said to his friend, like, oh, no, we can't. We can't make a movie. We need more people to do that. And so I walked in. I said, no, you don't. I said, here. And I gave him a little camera. And I said, just film back and forth. You Like, do a, a conversation scene with the two of you guys and just, you know, film. You, you take the camera for one shot and then you flip the scene around and do it the other way for the other shot. So I think long story short is just I think you just have to just if you want to make films and create content or, or whatever it is you want to do, you just need to start doing it. Mm. Um, and that's the only way you'll you'll learn and get better. Um, and you should, you know, make a point to just do it every day mm. if you can. And that's what I told him. And sure enough, they ran outside. They spent four hours outside running around filming each other. And they seemed so so thrilled that they were creating something, which is which is pretty cool to see. And then you threw it on Premiere yeah. and spent the next two weeks editing it. <laughs> How did you know? I know. You know, <laughs> uh, something that you said is interesting. So you started off as an editor. Yes. And I think I'm wondering whether, uh, and you're, you're doing a lot of uh, uh, directing and, uh, right now, and I'm, I guess I'm wondering whether one of the things that you bring to the filmmaking process is your editing skill. And I'm almost wondering if you think of directing and filmmaking as an editing experience, mm -hmm. like maybe where you're happiest or maybe where the film comes alive for you. Yeah. I think so, yeah. That's where the magic happens, for sure, is in post. And uh, I, I'll say, I, I don't think I'm the best director in the world at all, by any means. I don't think I'm, I actually think I'm a little bit of a hack when it comes to directing. <laughs> but w the one thing I do ha have is a very specific vision of exactly how the scene's going to edit before I even arrive on set. And I think that's what gives mm -hmm. me the edge to be able to film successfully. 
And I've had a lot of DPs tell me that too, that, you know, I'll, I'll say, hey, can you, if we're on a static shot, I might tell the DP, hey, can you rack into this shot, focus rack, or can we like land on the shot because I need to cut into it while in motion. And, and a lot of DPs tell me after this, like, wow, it's really interesting that you're so focused on, on the edit, you know, while we're filming. But that's, I, and I guess a lot of directors don't do that, but that's that's my focus is what is the final cut going to look like shot for shot. Mm. Um, so I think it helps to have that background. Yeah, I think we think of directors as being like, they all do one thing. Right. You know, like they go in and they're like Quentin Tarantino and they sit there and they stare at their actor or whatever. They, you know, have some kind of magical thing that they're doing. Right. But it's it's interesting is that it's it's an artistic creation and you can do it from any number of perspectives. You know, you could be the writer and be the director, but really the thing is the you know, it really comes to life for you in the visual um, piece almost in the in that edit and i think it's just really interesting that it's a role that um isn't specifically one thing yeah absolutely hmm. when you say that you're a hack what do you what do you mean by that <laughs> like you, I was, did you just mean like you, you feel like you're still still new to it or just that uh no i it's sort of i, I sort of make fun of myself a, a lot of the way okay. I, I i take my work seriously but my, not myself seriously that's kind of like my my whole shtick but uh i think yeah i think i just have my editing, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm braggadocious about it, but I feel like I'm very a masterful editor, and that's where my talent lies. And then directing, I feel like I'm okay, but I'm just not at that editing level, so I always kind of I know what you're saying. I lean into the post, yeah. You, know. you you just you know where your the the magic part for yourself <laughs> lies. I know yeah, what you're exactly. Saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, I see somebody like George Lucas, and you know, if you've ever seen any behind the scenes mm -hmm. things with him, and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to pull it off. You <laughs> right, <know>? yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, it's true. I don't, you worry a bit about him. Yeah. Like, he doesn't seem to be able to communicate with anybody. He's not telling <laughs> anybody anything. Right. Um, you know, and I think that he's probably one of those people, too, that maybe is, a, is an editing director. Like, yeah. he sees what the thing is going to look like, and then he's just hoping that he can direct it well enough that he can get what he needs to get so that he can make the thing. You know. Yeah, I actually think one one of his first films that put him on the sort of festival map was a was a complete edit piece of of photographs and news stories and I forget the name of it. I wish I could. It was before THX, uh, his little short. Yeah. Um, but it was it's a complete editing piece. So I I do I agree. I think he's always had an editor's mind uh, when it comes mm. to creativity. One thing I watched while we were away, I watched a film called A Cure for Wellness. Oh yeah which is... Gore Verbinski. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. And that, that actually was, if you look at Gore's IMDb or his whatever, Wikipedia, you'll see that he hasn't made anything since then. Oh, really? Yeah, that was, that was, like, a, that was like a big gamble. And I don't, I don't think it did very well, even though it is a very good movie. It didn't perform very well, especially compared to, you know, our Pirates of the Caribbean or, you know, oh, things yeah. like that. Yeah. So I think he was kind of pushed off the... The Hollywood Cliff for some period of time to do penance. It was very, I mean, it looked enormously expensive. Yeah, it did. I, I don't know what the budget was, but... And the other thing I saw was, and, I, and I, I texted you that I was watching it. It's called Mr. Inbetween, and it's an Australian right. series. And what's the premise of that? It's basically a hitman with a domestic life as well. Right. And it's when I say a hitman, it's it, that sounds a bit glamorous, but it's not glamorous. It, it's very sort of mundane, everyday life. And I just resisted watching it because I thought I don't really want anything brutal, you know, in these dark days. 
But actually, it's got some really funny comedy in it. Um, you know, not broad comedy. But it's quite dark and it is very funny. It's very dramatic, you know, and it keeps you watching. So I texted you that I was watching it. And then, of course, I've watched it now. It has three seasons. And there are two really interesting things about it. One is that each episode is only half an hour. And I think that's a really interesting a really interesting thing for a drama because I, I, I really like that idea because I like making a small thing, right. <laughs> having, having a small task to do at a time. And of course, the budget for a half hour is much less. And the other thing about it is that it's written and directed by and stars one guy. And it's really good, really, really good. I think that was one of the things that I found really compelling to me was because I was like, you know, I've another TV show about a hitman. I don't know if I want to do that. But whenever there's sort of like a person that's like the writer and the star and the sort of the, the driving force behind something, I find that really compelling because then it's like, you know, this is somebody that is dying to tell us something, you know. Hmm. Rob, have you seen Mr. In-Between? No, I haven't. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it at all. I don't know anything about it. It's- I would really recommend it. It's, it depends what you like, you know, but it's it's complicated and, and subtle. And uh, it's very good, but done by one guy. Oh, wow. I, I recommend it. All right. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. Mr. In-Between. Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Is there a place that people can go to either look at your work or, or keep up with you? Something that you prefer, either Instagram or a website? Yeah, you can. I mean, my website's always there. It's robertbartolome.com. I don't know if we can throw a grab. My, my, my name's hard to spell. Yeah, B-A-R-T-O-L-O-M-E, and we'll put a link in the podcast description so that people can go there. robertbartolome.com. Okay, um, I'm going to go and fix my roof. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, All good right. luck with that, yeah. And that's going to do it for this episode of How to Make a Film. Our gratitude to Robert Bartolome for giving us a look into the life of a working filmmaker. You can find Rob online at www.robertbartolome.com. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-B-A-R-T-O-L-O-M-E.com. Leave us a gloriously stunning review of our podcast on iTunes, and you're almost guaranteed to win our pile of Blu-ray films because Juliet can't figure out how to leave reviews. Please feel free to email your questions to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. Sign up for updates on Dan's upcoming film, Hold Excalibur, at secretplanet.co.uk. How to Make a Film was hosted by Dan Freeman and Sean Hurley. Produced by Jamie Walsh. Edited by Ethan Walsh.